This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Hello everybody, both in the room and out there wherever you are. Welcome to another Friday night lecture at Libri. This is uh, continuing our winter term <coughs> lecture series, and there's a number of more lectures that you can uh, you can look up on our website to see what the rest of the schedule is. But just for now, I'll give you next week's title: Dave Friedrich, who is our our uh, a worker here and tech wizard, um, don't laugh, <laughs> is lecturing on the, on the topic healing for our times. Recovering Hospitality and Friendship as Demonstrations of the Kingdom. So please feel free to tune in for that uh, next week, next Friday at the same time. So this lecture is entitled Taking Yourself Less Seriously, or the or part is what I would have named it um, had I known more about what I was getting into. The Art of Laughing at Yourself. And this, uh, so this is a lecture about being able to laugh at yourself. Um, one of the challenges of this lecture is that I think no one else can tell you when you should laugh at yourself. Um, they can tell you, but it is never helpful. And it's a pretty personal thing when you decide to laugh at yourself. I've also found it impossible to give a list of circumstances in which you should laugh at yourself. Um, all I can do is give some examples of uh, when I should have and didn't, and uh, maybe a few examples of when I did manage to uh, sort of. So uh, there's been there's been some comments flying around leading up to this lecture from friends about there should be another lecture on laughing at other people and how to, how to do that, um, how to take, uh, John who's here just suggested a lecture on how to take others less seriously. Um, there's a long tradition of this, Groucho Marx was quoted as saying, if you can't laugh at yourself, I'd be happy to do it for you. Uh, and this is not the theme of the lecture tonight. Uh, when it's okay to laugh at others. Rather, this lecture is really directed uh, to how you view yourself, how we view ourselves. How seriously do we take ourselves? How seriously should we take ourselves? Uh, how able are you to laugh along with others at your own absurdity when it suddenly becomes plain for all to see? So uh, be thinking about examples when you've been publicly embarrassed, and uh, you can share them later if you want, but you don't have to. Uh, might there have been something redemptive about being able to laugh in the midst of your embarrassment? Is there a redemptive time and place for self-directed humor? That's kind of where, uh, that's sort of the beginning question that I have. Um, 
and we'll explore that throughout the lecture tonight, and hopefully there'll be some some clarity. Although, like I said, not a not a list of circumstances <laughs> uh, or any sort of techniques or anything. Just uh, two two points of clarification. Um, this title could go in many different directions. I'm not going to talk about sort of self-deprecating humor as a strategy for effective communication. Um, it is often used as a strategy for effective communication. Uh, people can use self-deprecating humor in a falsely humble way or in a way that is very technique-driven uh, to be cute and relatable and uh, win friends and influence people. And in my mind, self-deprecating style as a technique is, is sort of is a more trivial thing than what I want to talk about tonight. It's not it's not really what I'm getting at tonight. Another more important aspect of not taking ourselves seriously is the need for adults to play. And that's another thing that I'm not going to talk about very much tonight, except just in passing. Um, we sometimes develop an image of ourselves and our work as being so important and so serious that we cannot possibly, in good conscience, play. <clears throat> we cannot indulge in some fun, light-hearted activity that has no measurable goal or purpose except enjoyment. Sometimes we, we develop that kind of um, impression of ourselves and how important and seriously we should be taken. Uh, and this is one of the ways in which we do, I think, take ourselves too seriously and neglect an important aspect of our humanity, which is uh, to delight and to play. But that's what I'm not talking about. So uh, there are some there are some good lectures on that topic, uh, both on the topic of Sabbath and the, and the importance of play that uh, I'm not going to duplicate. So if you want to uh, search for those lectures on our database, you can do that. Uh, my outline tonight <coughs> is... Uh, Yep, there we go. Um, roughly as follows. What do I mean by laughing at ourselves? Um, and then, where does our sense of the ridiculous come from? Are people, meaning you and me, actually ridiculous? <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> laughing at ourselves with others. Laughing at, our, laughing at yourself in prayer. And then, in conclusion, laughing at yourself in heaven. And uh, hopefully there'll be some clarity that emerges. Uh, I'm very, just to be clear, I'm very, very much engaging with these ideas still, trying to figure out what I think about them. So <laughs> the, um, there'll be hopefully some, some good conversations that will come from it in the discussion time. Uh, I think we can do, this is sort of our first section here, laughing, what does laughing at ourselves even mean? What am I talking about? Um, I think we can do damage to ourselves and to others by failing to laugh at ourselves. Sometimes, in defense of our self-image, as serious, someone to be taken seriously, maybe I have a self-image as being important, or maybe I have a self-image of being slick in some way, competent, we end up simply looking more ridiculous and becoming less credible. And worst of all... It's particularly in the context of, of conflicts or conversations in which there's tension, uh, we widen the divide between ourselves and other people, making it harder to communicate. So pride keeps us from acknowledging what is perfectly clear to everyone else around us 
that we've just made an ass of ourselves. Um, and the, the perfect example of this, I'm not actually going to read, sadly, just for the sake of time, I'm not going to read this example, but, uh, but I think you should all go back and read the original version of Peter Pan and, uh, and study closely Mr. Darling's character, the, the, the father of the, the three children that get whisked away to Neverland. He's just a perfect, it's satire, it's an exaggeration, of course, but he's just the perfect picture of, of an absurd person who, who becomes increasingly more absurd the more he tries to defend his dignity. Uh, so he becomes, in a sense, the more, the more passionate about his dignity he becomes, the less dignified he becomes, uh, and it's very, very funny. Uh, but this is uh, an exaggeration that we, we probably see in, in less extreme forms all the time, maybe even in ourselves. While we can lose credibility by demanding to be taken seriously, we might just gain credibility by laughing at ourselves. Uh, this feels costly, though. We may be called, I think we may be called at times by God, to laugh at ourselves when we most feel like being taken seriously. Uh, when it really does hurt. Uh, I'll, I'll share an example from my life. Uh, I have been told at various times by various people that I talk too much. <laughs> this is... It's an odd example to give while I'm lecturing. <laughs> really tried to cut the length of my lecture down just so I don't uh, prove anybody correct. Um, but, uh, and this is true, I do, I have been known to talk too much sometimes, particularly during, you know, you know, serious conversations in which I feel I actually have something to say, something to contribute. Um, this is part of, part of our job as library workers is to talk a fair amount. Uh, about serious things, uh, but in my eagerness to articulate what I think needs to be said right away, sometimes I do not leave enough room for other people to speak. My wife has various signals that she has for me from across the table when we have students at our table. Uh, but uh, this came to my attention in a particular way when, when I was at a retreat. Actually, my whole family was at a retreat a number of years ago. And this large group of people, many of whom were in ministry of different kinds, um, broken up into small groups to discuss the talk and to discuss the, the biblical passage the talk was based on. And there were some shy people in the group, uh, and then there was a leader who had had some experience in uh, leading Bible studies for InterVarsity. And I talked a lot. E evidently, a quieter member of the group wanted to share something. And I was unaware of this. Uh, at some point, the leader of our small group indicated with words and with what I perceived as overly dramatic hand gestures that I needed to shut up. <laughs> um, sort of a kind of a double stop. <laughs> and uh, there might have or there might not have been a small corporate sigh of relief in the group when she did this. I don't remember. It might have happened. Um and of course, I have this, you know, gut kind of uh, impulse to say, I'm actually not talking too much, and here's why, and everything. I, everyone else seems to be kind of reluctant to speak up, so I'm just stepping into the gap here. And I have one last point I want to, you know, there's all, there's all kinds of... Uh, but I did get the message loud and clear, and so I, I stopped talking, but it did, it rattled me in a way that surprised me, and it, it hurt. 
Uh, and so this, that's my whole story. That's it. Um, there's, there's, it's sort of a story about nothing. Uh, doesn't this happen all the time to people? What's the big deal? Someone told me that I was talking too much. Uh, this is five years later. Why am I still thinking about this? It's a good question. Um, because I think of myself as someone who listens to others. That's why <laughs> I think of myself as someone who is sensitive to the quiet people in the room. Uh, I think of myself as someone who does not blunder on and on, running off at the mouth, totally unaware that I'm that I'm um, silencing other people. And so it was painful, both because I did not want to be insensitive. I really didn't want to talk to prevent anybody else from speaking, genuinely. But it was also painful because I thought I was sensitive. Uh, my self-image received a large smack. And I realized that I was not who I thought I was. Now, part of the failure of this moment was that I was not humble enough to... I, I took correction, but I was not humble enough to laugh at myself and my own tendency to talk a lot. And to laugh at my own mischaracterization of myself. Which was also kind of funny. Um, I did not have the capacity to do that and move on. There's a way in which... If I'd been able to laugh at myself in those ways, I could have moved on quicker. Um, like I said, I did take correction, but I didn't move on until much later. Because <laughs> I kept turning that story over in my head. Sort of being annoyed by it. Sort of acknowledging that this woman was perfectly right. Sort of whatever. Um, and this experience has actually troubled me much more than it would have, I think, if I'd been able to simply acknowledge that I was being ridiculous. Uh... This is hard. We all enjoy it when people laugh with us. Maybe you've just told a joke and it lands perfectly and the room explodes in laughter and you think, yes, I'm the funny person in the room. Uh, there's no doubt that there's a certain, you know, shot in the arm you get from that. <clears throat> uh, but none of us enjoy being laughed at. When people around us suddenly notice absurdity in us and point it out, it's a very different experience. It's still laughter, right? <laughs> no, but we're the, we are the ones that the laughter is being directed at. We're the object. Uh, when the joke is on you, and you are the punchline, it tends to activate every angry, defensive, self-justifying impulse we have. Uh, but what if we had a greater openness to being perceived as ridiculous? <laughs> What if we were gloriously free from feeling threatened by laughter? What about a habitual readiness to join others in laughing when our real foolishness has been legitimately displayed? Uh, again, this is not a strategy or a technique. Really what I'm talking about is simply one way in which biblical humi humility could manifest itself. There are many ways in which humility should manifest itself in the lives of Christians. Maybe this is one way. I, I even think it's one way in which we can be peacekeepers. Being able to laugh at ourselves rather than to defend our dignity and get in, and to, and to increase the tension of every conversation we're in. <clears throat> Another example... Uh, of which I think this applies. Think of the impression that many non-Christians have of how Christians communicate. Now, this, this might not be a fair characterization 
this is certainly maybe a stere- an unfair stereotype in much the case, much of the time, but there's some truth to it. This, it, it. this impression goes something like this. Christians are so convinced that they have the only truth and they pretend to be so certain about everything they say, it's a nightmare to talk to one. They don't just take what they are saying seriously. They take themselves so seriously when saying it. It's like they're defending their honor when they're talking about their faith. Is that what we're doing when we talk about our faith, defending our honor? <clears throat> the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, just reading a very just one sentence from a much longer passage, he says, We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. And he doesn't give a list of potential stumbling blocks of things that you should particularly remove. But I think we can, we can think about our own tendency to take ourselves so seriously in defense of our, our honor as a potential stumbling block to the gospel. Because Paul is talking about removing as many of the insignificant obstacles to belief that we can... So that if someone does reject the gospel, it's for no other reason than the cross. (laughs) They're actually really rejecting the heart of the gospel. They're not rejecting the truth because of some obnoxious way in which we behave. Our goal should be to remove all those potential obstacles so that the only real obstacle is the one, is the truth. Will someone accept the truth of the cross or not? So could the seriousness with which we take ourselves be an unnecessary stumbling block to the gospel? That's just a thought to, to throw out there, and I um, we can talk about it later. We can learn something here from the Narnian uh, Jackdaw, who is without a name, in the story, The Magician's Nephew. I'm going to read a portion of it. So The Magician's Nephew by C.S. Lewis is a story... Um, about the founding of Narnia, the creation of Narnia, which is this other world that people from our world can get to via magic. Um, They're sort of let into this world. But this is the world on the very day that it was created, and the animals, specific animals, have been given the gift of language. And so they're really persons, even though they're animals. Then there's other animals that are still dumb that remain that way. Um, And this is... Aslan, who's who's the creator, who's just called them all into existence, speaking to this group of animals. There's a circle of animals that are following him around, and he's instructing them. And he says this to them. The dumb beasts whom I have not chosen are yours also. Treat them gently and cherish them, but do not go back to their ways, lest you cease to be talking beasts. For out of them you were taken, and into them you can return. Do not so. No, Aslan, we won't, we won't, said everyone. But one perky jackdaw added in a loud voice, No fear! And everyone else had finished just before he said it, so that his words came out quite clear in a dead silence. And perhaps you have found out how awful that can be, say, at a party. (laughs) The jackdaw became so embarrassed that it hit its head under its wing as if it was going to sleep. And all the other animals began making various queer noises, which are their way of laughing, and which, of course, no one has ever heard in our world. They tried, at first, to repress it. But Aslan said, Laugh and fear not, creatures. 
Now that you are no longer dumb and witless, you need not also be grave. For jokes, as well as justice, come in with speech. So they all let themselves go. And there was such a merriment that the jackdaw himself plucked up courage again and perched on the cab horse's head between its ears, clapping its wings, and said, Aslan, Aslan, have I made the first joke? Will everybody always be told how I made the first joke? No, little friend, said Aslan. You have not made the first joke. You have only been the first joke. (laughs) Then everyone laughed more than ever. But the jackdaw didn't mind and laughed just as loud till the horse shook its head and the jackdaw lost its balance and fell off. But remembering its wings, they were still new to it before it reached the ground. <laughs> so we have something we can maybe learn from this. The, the, uh, the, the innocence of this character, of this creature, uh, who is open to just joining in the laughter, even though it's not laughter about something, he didn't make a joke because he was clever. He's laughing at, at himself. <laughs> Joining in with the laughter that's directed at himself because he didn't make a joke. He, he is the joke. And there's something wonderful about this. Uh, this non-threatened recognition of his own ridiculousness. And Lewis portrays it as a freedom and a sign of innocence. The world is as yet uncorrupted, and this is this is the this character's response to being laughed at. Uh, but that's a bird in a fantasy story. So, um, are we ridiculous? <laughs> We're talking about real people tonight. Um, I think we have to back up and slow down a bit and start to talk about um, some some broader issues. <laughs> Where does our sense of the ridiculous come from? What is it? Uh, what makes people laugh? This is a, a very complicated question, and there's, there's, uh, in order to talk about it at all, as with many things, you have to simplify it a lot. So there, there could be many rabbit trails and, and exceptions to what I'm saying here, but if it's often said that what makes people laugh is a sudden and unexpected perception of incongruity. This is a definition that can be used to describe humor in general. Incongruity perceived by someone. It takes a person to, to find something funny, right? If, if there's incongruity in the woods and no one's there to witness it, it's not really a joke, right? Uh, but incongruity that's perceived by somebody in a particular way. <clears throat> in other words, we tend to find a situation humorous when we become suddenly aware of two elements coming together that do not belong together. It's a juxtaposition that's jarring to us, and if all goes well, we laugh. Right? There are obviously many, many qualifications, like I said, to this definition. Uh, the second you try to distill what humor is into a nice, neat definition and tell people why exactly it is that they're laughing, uh, you run into trouble. First of all, when you explain humor, it's never funny to explain humor. Um, secondly, not all jokes are equally humorous to everyone. Uh, what makes a situation funny to one person and not to another is a mysterious thing. We're in the realm of real subjectivity here. Um, not all incongruity is funny. That's another complicating factor. Some incongruity is horrific and tragic. 
Unfortunately, uh, sometimes we find ourselves laughing at incongruities that we know perfectly well are not funny. That's another complicating factor. We laugh at things that aren't funny. Say, truly cruel jokes that there's no real uh, benefit to them all except tearing somebody down and hurting somebody. Um, Sometimes we laugh to be accepted when we don't really understand the joke. That's another complicating factor. Maybe particularly when we're younger, but but for some of us still. (laughs) Everybody's laughing. I don't want to look like an idiot, so I'm going to laugh even though I really don't know what's going on. Uh, There are many nuances to humor that are unique to to specific cultures. Uh, This is why jokes don't always translate well from one culture to another. It's also the reason why we so seldom find things that we would define as jokes in the Bible. As modern people, looking back. Um... There's, there's humor in the Bible in various places, but it, there's not very few examples of what we would call a joke with a punchline and a setup, right? Um, all this is true and it complicates matters, but nevertheless, incongruity of some kind is still at the heart of, of humor. That's what I'm trying to say. And humor flows from unexpected incongruity. Things come together that do not belong together and it's striking and it, and it catches us off guard. So... If I was to, if I was to begin saying to you, "Hey, uh, a guy and a giraffe walk into a bar and start ordering drinks," you know, that's just a setup. That's not a punchline, but you know that it's going to be a joke, right? Because of uh, how utterly ridiculous the image is. It's an incongruous image. Giraffes do not go to bars and order drinks, but because we all have imaginations, we can still picture that, and it's an incongruous picture. So you know, before there even is a joke, you know a joke is coming because the picture just doesn't doesn't fit. Um, I think there's a good demonstration of this idea, this, this this connection between humor and incongruity in the Harry Potter stories in book three, which is called The Prisoner of Azkaban. And I apologize if you if you don't know about Harry Potter and, and the details. I'm not going to explain everything, but but I'll <coughs> explain a bit and just assume. Uh, that some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, so there's a class at Hogwarts, this school, uh, called Defense Against the Dark Arts, and it's training up young witches and wizards to, to battle against uh, evil magic. And in this one lesson, they're, they're learning how to repel a, uh, a very unpleasant magical creature called a boggart that hangs out in dark closets and wardrobes and uh, cupboards. No one knows what a Bogart looks like because a Bogart is a shapeshifter and it immediately takes the form of what you most fear. So if you come into contact with a Bogart, you never see what the Bogart actually looks like. All you see is what it's just changed into. So a Bogart looks different to different people. So in the class, the Hogwarts students are taking it in turn to face the Bogart. This is training. For Ron, who's one of the main characters, it turns into a gigantic spider. Uh, for another student, I forget which one, it turns into a severed hand that's like twitching around on the floor, which is gross. Uh, for Neville, it turns into the most dreaded teacher at Hogwarts, which is Professor Snape. The Bogart's weakness is that it cannot stand to be laughed at. And so in order to defeat it, you have to think of something that would make it appear silly to you. And then say the incantation, Ridiculous! (laughs) Spelled ridiculous. Uh, 
When faced with Ron's spell, the giant spider suddenly has roller skates on the end of every leg and starts to slip around and slide around on the floor. For Neville, Professor Snape is suddenly wearing Neville's grandmother's clothes. His, uh, her hat, her purse, her, cl- her, her dress, everything. When everybody laughs, the Bogart, which is no longer scary, is forced to shapeshift again to the next victim, whoever, whoever approaches it. So uh, this is—it's kind of a fun, interesting part of the story, and, and that the Bogart take you know um, appears later on in the series. But J.K. Rowling isn't just telling an interesting story here. There, there's a there's a there's a demonstration of sort of what humor does um, in this chapter. Each student's deepest fear is transformed into a joke by introducing incongruity to it. So roller skates do not belong on spiders. Uh, Professor Snape does not belong in Mrs. Longbottom's dress and bonnet. Uh, it mysteriously becomes funny to the to the students, and it's that laughter that it, that that it is key in defeating this this creature. So, you get the idea. Uh, if all humor is some kind of incongruity, though, uh, and we're talking about the ridiculousness of people and ourselves at times. Is there something incongruous about us as people? Uh, are, are you and I ridiculous? <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, there's a Yorkshire saying, evidently from the north of England... There's not so queer as folk. There's not so queer as folk. Uh, the American version of it is, ain't nothing stranger than people. And uh, it's true. <laughs> the behavior of human beings uh, and their words and their thoughts just don't add up much of the time. We are uh, mysterious beings even to ourselves, maybe particularly to ourselves. Woody Allen, in the introduction to the movie Annie Hall, I think it's Annie Hall, tells this joke. He says, two women sit down at a restaurant to eat. The first woman says, the food here is really terrible. The second woman says, yes, you're right, and such small portions. (laughs) And and this is Woody Allen's take on the absurd contradiction at the heart of being human. Life is full of misery, disappointment, heartache, and despair. But when it comes down to it, it's all over much too quickly. That's his way of summing up the absurdity of human existence. You know, life is miserable, let's all admit it, and yet we just want it to last a little longer. Why is it that people feel the need to both complain about life's misery and complain about how life doesn't last long enough? We are a bundle of conflicting impulses. I think that's actually a plagiarized quote that was describing our, our former president in an article I read, a bundle of conflicting impulses. Um, so if, if it is, if I plagiarized, I'm sorry, I'm not sure where it came from, but that, that, that line came to my head and then I just recognized it. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> Uh, we are capable of incredible creativity and complete apathy. 
uh, and not just different people, sometimes in the very same person, capable of these two things, capable of great generosity and also blind narcissism, capable of presenting an image of ourselves to the world that bears little resemblance to who we actually are. And we know it. Uh, we struggle and agonize over our place in the world in a way that animals never seem to do. Despite our superior intelligence, we are woefully insecure in our place in the world compared to uh, other creatures. There certainly is empirical evidence for the ridiculousness of humans in general. Uh, What does the Bible say about any of this? Um, A lot, of course. And I I just want to give just a little bit of a, just a very inadequate kind of Reflection on, on some of the ways these topics come up in the Bible. Laughter is addressed in many, many different ways in the Bible. I'm not, I, I was unable to find a particular verse about laughing at yourself. Please tell me if you know one. Um, but in the book of Ecclesiastes, in this famous passage in chapter 3, where it talks about there's a time for all these different things. There's an appropriate moment in life for all these different kinds of activities. Um, There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. And many other passages in the Bible support this nuanced view of laughter. Sometimes it's appropriate, sometimes it's not. (laughs) Uh, It's not something that uh, gets just a, a rubber stamp of approval or disapproval. It depends on the context, of course. Uh... One kind of example is is when laughter is described among the people of God. It's often described as a very good and beautiful thing. It's a sign of God's blessing on his people. Something that naturally flows out of his people, out of their joy and their gratitude to God. So one example of this is in Psalm 126. There are many others. Um, When the Lord restored the, the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed... Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. So this is an an awesome picture of God, not just uh, delivering his people and giving them gifts and then walking away, but delivering them, giving them gifts, and then placing laughter in their mouths. It's this picture of, you can't think of a more um, powerful image of God legitimizing laughter and, and merriment and joy. It's not just indifferent toward it. He's the one that placed it in their mouths, right? It's quite a beautiful image. Another way that laughter is addressed, uh, laughter can be a sign of great folly. The laughter of the proud is a sign of their refusal to repent, very often. And you see this all over the Bible. I'm just looking at one passage here in James, James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Come near to God and he will come near to you. This whole thing is, this whole passage is a call to repentance. Turn away from your sin, come back to God. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, 
and he will lift you up. So this, in the words of Ecclesiastes, this would be the time to weep, right? There's a time to laugh. This isn't it. There's a time to weep. And really, it's, it's, it's weeping in response to your own sin. Uh, it's, it's the remorse of, of being aware of your own sin and then turning to God in repentance. Another way the Bible addresses laughter is when God himself laughs. And this is a complicated one to me because it's, it's never um, laughing from a sense of fun or there's examples of God delighting in finding joy, but the Bible very seldom talks about God's laughter apart from his scorn and derision. It's, it's a judgment, it's a judging laughter on the folly of the wicked. Um, Psalm 37 is an example of this. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them, but the Lord laughs at the wicked for he knows their day is coming. So it's very sobering. It's not that he thinks this is comical. It's, it's, it's sort of a, uh, <laughs> kind of laugh you mentioned. <laughs> Uh, it's a knowing laugh. Similarly, in, in Psalm 2, God laughs at those who really think they can overthrow God's chosen king. Um, so there's incongruity here. Uh, you get the sense God is laughing at the incongruity that these, these little kings actually think that they can disrupt his plans. It's it's a little bit like laughing at a, a ladybug that's challenging me to a boxing match or something. It's like that's an image that um, is absurd, um, and God, in a similar way, laughs at the, at the wickedness of the evil. The self deception is deep. Uh, the divide, I guess, the incongruity, I think, is there's a huge divide between these kings' perception of themselves. And then what God sees, the reality that God sees and knows, is actually the truth. <clears throat> another, another use of, of humor in the Bible, I would say, is the relentless use of satire in the prophets, criticizing idolatry in particular. And uh, this is less of a, of a reference to laughter itself, but it's a use of humor uh, with a very, very critical edge to it, particularly in the book of Isaiah. I'm going to read uh, excerpts from, from Isaiah chapter 40 and 41. So skipping a little bit in the middle, but I'm just going to read it continuously though, because it is very much of a piece. And get a, get a sense, listen for the, for the irony and the absurdity of the picture that's being painted for you. This satire is, is sort of a literary technique of uh, exaggerating something that's bad, that's vice, in order to reveal the absurdity of it, and, and to, or in order to reveal the vice, the badness of it. And so this is uh, beginning in verse 5 of Isaiah 40. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires. Lebanon is where all the huge cedars come from that build the tent, you know, that's known for all the massive trees. It's not enough to build an altar fire. <laughs> Nor it's animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. 
With whom then will you compare God? Given that all this is the case. <laughs> Who are you going to compare him to? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Which is, I think, a... That will not topple the deeply ironic jab. And then skipping a bit, picking up again in the next chapter. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Tell us, you idols, what is going to happen? Tell us what the former things were, so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds, so we may know that you are gods. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing, and your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. Um, this is chilling. I, I, I find, I mean, this it, it is satire, and it's, it's these words, I think, while they're harsh and they're critical, they're meant to make people chuckle, I think. For me, the line that makes me chuckle the most, building up, do something, anything. You're speaking to a, to a, a inert piece of wood, unresponsive. Do something, good or bad, anything, so that we may be dismayed by you. <clears throat> so the absurdity of vice, in this case idolatry, is being revealed through the humor of the text. The incongruity is that the living God is at hand. The one for whom the nations are dropping the bucket. And yet his people are messing around with bits of wood and metal trying to be heard. Uh, it's a picture of true folly, right? It's, it's tragic and it's scary. And this entire text is meant as a warning. It's not meant as a joke. Uh... But it's made to look ridiculous through satire. Idolatry is made to look ridiculous through satire. In a way, it's a sacrilegious thing to say, but Isaiah is putting a bonnet on Professor Snape here. Idolatry is evil and wicked and scary, but Isaiah is putting a bonnet on it and making it look as ridiculous as it truly is. As a way of teaching us something. So... Is there something ridiculous about people in general, though? Something we all share? Not just sort of humor directed towards vice in a, in a critical way. And I think for this question, we have to go back to Genesis 1 through 3, the very beginning of the story. Human beings are given a place of tremendous honor in creation. They are made in the image of God. And I've... I've Sort of think of the image of God, the Imago Dei, in three layers. And I'm not sure whether this is, uh, I'm sure someone has thought of this already. And uh, <clears throat> But in any case, there's, there's sort of three aspects of it that are really important. Starting with the most important aspect of the image of God. Adam and Eve are intrinsically glorious because God decides to make them in his image. Intrinsically meaning uh, in their very substance, in their, in their very identity. 
this is their identity, which is ordained by God before he even forms them. He says, let us make man in our image. Let us make them male and female in our image. We simply are image bearers, not because of anything that we have done, but simply by virtue of being human beings, which means that human beings have tremendous value to God. Um, Adam and Eve has a status that demands respect. They have a status that demands respect. But it's a status that has been conveyed to them, given to them, not earned or or, uh, in any way. This is the intrinsic value aspect, the intrinsic dignity of the image of God. The second sort of layer is that in addition to this status and identity, Adam and Eve share, actually really do share some of God's own attributes. Obviously in a very dependent and small and derivative way. They share his personhood, his ability to have relationship, his creativity, his ability to affect reality around him, a, a, a concept that we call dominion. His ability to love, his capacity for reason. These are all uh, attributes of God that Adam and Eve at creation to some degree really share. And as they exercise and develop these capacities, they are imaging God. And that's a different use of the word. That's a, that's a verb, <laughs> a verb form of the word image. But to image God is to use all these capacities to demonstrate the ways in which God has made you in his image. They can actively and of their own will be like God in God's world in ways that please him. Not in ways that usurp his power, but in ways that please him. So their capacities are not the source of their identity, but these capacities do confirm their identity as image bearers. They're a sign of their status before God. And then thirdly, this is sort of the third layer Uh, They also bear God's image by having responsibilities for creation around them uh, that are appropriate to their identity and capacity. So because of their status as image bearers and their unique abilities that come with it, Adam and Eve have a high calling. They're called to something. They're expected to to do something. Um, They have this ability. I just mentioned we call it dominion. But it's, it's, dominion is basically power rightly exercised. It's not domination, it's dominion, which means righteous exercise of, of power in creation. And this power has to be used both for their own well-being and for their children's well-being, but also for the flourishing of the whole creation. So God told them to both expand in the earth, but also tend and care for the earth. Uh, so the picture that Genesis gives uh, is of Adam and Eve's identity and abilities uh, actually make them well suited to their responsibilities. These three aspects are, are of, of the image of God are completely connected and really inseparable. But there's our intrinsic identity, there's capacities that go along with it, and then there's the responsibilities that go along with that. And this is humanity's glorious beginning. Uh, a glorious identity, amazing abilities, and a high calling. That includes a responsibility to make culture, to reproduce, to explore, uh, and to care for the world in which God has placed them. And as we know, this does not last. 
Adam and Eve, tempted by Satan, were not content with their derived glory. They were not content with being God's obedient representatives in the world. So they grasped for authority equal to God's. Desiring to be determiners of what was good and evil. Rather than accepting and submitting to to God's definitions of good and evil. And in grasping to be like God, they do not just fall back to where they started. As if it was like, oh, nice try, let's just let's start this over again. No, sadly, they fall way below where they first started. Remember, the original human beings were created, uh, and their calling and their, and their identity was glorious. But in trying to be God, they ended up falling far below where they started, their, their glorious beginning. It's, it, you, I think of it like a trapeze artist who jumps from the platform, reaching for their, the trapeze, but misses. What do they do? Do they float backwards and land on their platform again? No. They, they plummet, hopefully towards the safety net, they plummet way below where they started. So it, it's a picture of just drastically miscalculating reality and missing the mark. And you, you don't just go back to where you started. You go way below. <clears throat> So Adam and Eve become really a pitiful shadow of what they used to be. No longer the purely glorious creatures that God made them to be. Uh, Their glory had depended and had flowed out of their good relationship with the Lord. That's where their glory came from. Uh, And when that relationship was uh, fractured, so was their glory. And one way of articulating the the tragedy of the fall is to say that stark incongruities enter into every part of human existence. Where there once had been integrity and coherence. So listen, listen for all the incongruities here. We were made for holiness and moral perfection. But now sin and rebellion against God have infected every part of our lives. We were made for God to love and cherish, but now we stand under his judgment. We were made for perfect relationship with him, but now our relationship with him is fraught with pretense and fear and hiding, lack of trust and outright rebellion. We were made for communion and harmony with other people, but conflict and jealousy, blame shifting from the very beginning... Bitterness, hatred, and murder have entered into human experience. We were made to be loving stewards over creation, but we find ourselves in an antagonistic relationship with creation. We're afraid of creation, and creation's afraid of us. For good reason. We exploit and destroy what we are created to care for. The very world that according to God's own design, we depend on for life. That's an incongruity. We exploit and destroy the very world that God has given us uh, to depend on. We were made to be whole, integrated creatures in whom spiritual and physical and emotional aspects function in harmony with each other, but we are fractured and disintegrated and divided even in ourselves. We don't even have a good relationship with ourselves. Uh, Unable to understand ourselves and at war with ourselves much of the time. And lastly... We were made to live forever, but we die. 
So these are just a few of the, of the hideous incongruities that flow from the fall. And I think the more we understand the goodness of God's original creation, the more tragic this, these alienations are. And the more wrong these incongruities seem to us, will appear to us. But in each case, the glorious capacities we have as humans are smudged and misused and corrupted by sin. And as a result, we're prone to fail in our responsibilities as well. So each aspect uh, is affected. However, the, the image of God as our identity, that first and primary aspect of the image of God, is not blotted out. Our intrinsic value, based on our status as image bearers, is unchanged. There's lots of ways to say this. I'll say a few more. Um, Our unworthiness has not affected our worth in God's eyes. The Imago Dei still remains the deepest aspect of every person's identity, whether they know it or not. It is truly the one thing that every human being still shares in common, beneath all the things that make us different. One one uh, theologian said that the image of God is the only thing about a human being that goes all the way down. <laughs> In other words, it's the very, very foundation and base of what it is to be a human. Our cultural, our racial, our ethnic, our you know economic differences are layered on top of that. No one of those things goes all the way down into the very, whatever, foundation of what we are as human beings. But the image of God does. Which means it transcends cultures, it transcends time, uh, transcends everything else. Even our, even something as central and important to us as our sexuality doesn't go as deep down as the image of God. So these, uh, <clears throat> this is a way in which even though the fall has happened and every aspect of, of what we are as humans has been twisted and broken, our fundamental identity as image bearers is still remains. Uh, but what about the capacities? <laughs> uh, the ways in which we were meant to show forth our glorious identity? They have been twisted and corrupted by sin. Um, they've also been diminished by the fall. I think our dominion is not what it once was. Not just because we're sinners and we tend to dominate and, and twist it into something evil. But uh, creation, just by virtue of the fall happening, has more power over us than it was intended to have. We are subject to futility and weakness in a way that we were not intended. So in this way, I think we're both participators in the fall through our sin, but also victims of the fall in millions of different ways that that we have not caused ourselves, but we're just living in that reality. We're finite in a a way that uh, Adam and Eve were finite as well, but in a a much more... um, yeah, they're, they're, they're not weak like we are. So if we were made to be like a painting, picture the image of God as you are a painting, a priceless masterpiece. After the fall, it's like that painting has been turned into a preschooler, preschooler's finger painting project. It hasn't been destroyed. The, the, the canvas is still there. The masterpiece is still there. But there's a bunch of junk on top of it. <laughs> there may be scratches in it. Uh, the fact that it's a masterpiece might be hard to see. It may take faith to see that. Right? Um, at times, it's unrecognizable, but it's still a Van Gogh. <laughs> and uh, 
we are, I think, thankfully, because of the grace of God, we are still able to see this glory in people, even in ourselves. You think of all the very real examples of human excellence, of heroism, of mercy, of of generosity, of creativity. These things are still real and alive in the world. But even at their best, I think they're a shadow of what they were meant to be. So, uh, this is a very general description of how the Bible understands the human predicament apart from God's radical intervention. (laughs) We're defaced masterpieces. Or, uh, as Sarah was saying last week, glorious ruins. Um, Or maybe it was two weeks ago. Glorious ruins is a way of describing human beings that does justice both to... uh, what people were at creation, but also to, the, to what the fall has had, the havoc that the fall has wreaked on humanity, um, the ruin and the glory. This means that we, I think, experience a whole spectrum of incongruities. Some are tragic and the result of sin, very directly, but other times we experience incongruity in less harmful ways. Sometimes things happen to us uh, that just simply do not seem to reflect the high status that we have as human beings, right? Uh, our innate God-given dignity. Um, for instance, this is a story, true story. Walking back from my chicken coop one morning, winter, it's freezing cold, icy path, handful of eggs. Oh. Um, lose traction, no. slip. Don't even really fall terribly badly, but just 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 the the the. Um, you know, the reflex is to make a fist. No. <laughs> Just crush the eggs. No. And sit in the snowbank uh, with egg yolk dripping between my fingers. And where's the glory? <laughs> Where did it go? Where's the, <laughs> where's the innate grace and, and coordination that human beings were created to have? Um... I think I, might, I I don't remember. I think I was really angry and then left. Probably maybe a little later. But in any case, it was frustrating. <laughs> uh, or another example of a former pastor of mine, a, a beloved friend uh, of ours. I shared. I think I shared this story recently. <laughs> During a Christmas service, the culmination of the Christmas service, right, the last hymn when we're all about to leave, we stand up and it's joy to the world, and he tells the congregation, "Sing out lustfully." Um, these moments make me laugh Uh, why do they make me laugh (laughs) Uh, because a glorious human being a would be ruler of creation has for a brief moment been an ass Um, and this incongruity strikes us as ridiculous we've been made for glory and yet we appear foolish all the time (laughs) Uh, not necessarily because of some outright sin, but because we are no longer masters of our environment. Our, our limitations have been exaggerated. The effects of our, our finitude have been amplified. <laughs> uh, and this is why G.K. Chesterton can say famously, this is not an exact quote, but it's the basic idea. If you see a man running down the street chasing his hat in the wind and you find it funny, it is proof of the existence of God. 
<laughs> and it's he's getting at this this idea that like why would you find it funny if someone is just running after their hat in the wind? What, what's funny about that? Um, well, it's only it's only funny if it's absurd because that man is doing something ridiculous that is incongruous with who he is, right, as a human being. <laughs> and uh, whenever I say this, because G.K. Chesterton is from the era, he was from, I picture a man in tailcoat, you know, like top hat and very, very dressed up, dignified looking London gentleman tearing down the street trying to catch his hat. Um, if you find it funny, it's because there's incongruity there. And the reason there's incongruity there is that this man is doing something ridiculous, and yet he is an image of God with huge dignity granted to him by the Creator. <laughs> um, now, I don't know if that proof for the existence of God would stand up under real philosophical scrutiny, I, uh, but I, it, it's still really worth reflecting on. <laughs> <clears throat> But we need to move on. Uh, what about this idea of laughing at ourselves now? Now that we've backed way up and gotten a running start and uh, have looked at some biblical passages, um, the glorious and the ruinous nature of human beings, I think our approach to laughing at ourselves has to be very nuanced because of this. <laughs> Jesus does not call us to treat ourselves flippantly as if we have no dignity or value. We're not supposed to be excited about other people treating us that way, either. Um, this is why humor that's really cruel and tears us down is actually not of God. Uh, it fails to reflect the glorious part of what a person is. So you and I are more than just absurdities. However, Jesus does warn us to be ready and to be unsurprised when our dignity is not respected, particularly if it's because of his name. Be ready to be treated as less than you are. Uh, in various places in Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount, but e- even the part that talks about turning the other cheek, uh, if you're struck on the face, on the right cheek, offer the left to the, to the person. And this is not, um, I don't think this is a text about nonviolence per se. Uh, it's about our response to being publicly humiliated and dishonored. The image is of Two people standing in the street, one person smacks the other in the face, which is an ultimate, in that culture, incredible, dis- well, in this culture too, an incredible dishonor and an embarrassment uh, to that person, an assault on their dignity. Jesus is commanding us not to retaliate in defense of our honor. Do not defend your dignity by returning the insult and smacking the person back, is the point of the text. The temptation to strike back by, uh, by you know, I, I think another way of applying this is to th- think of, even short of getting smacked in the face, being, being the brunt of a joke. The temptation to return with a joke, ridiculing somebody else, intended to humiliate them in return, mostly in order to feel better ourselves. You know, th- this is the kind of response that Jesus is saying, no, be ready for humiliation. And of course, he himself is the model for this. Be ready to be humiliated and not retaliate in like kind. Uh, I think that godly humility calls us to limit the seriousness with which we take ourselves in a variety of other ways too. 
we're not supposed to take ourselves so seriously that correction from someone else rocks our world. (laughs) Correction from somebody else should not destroy us. We should not take ourselves so seriously that we demand that all eyes be on us when we feel we have something important to say. We should not take ourselves so seriously that we need to maintain the impression of knowing more about a topic than we actually do, or knowing more about a topic than anybody else in the room. That's not a battle we're called to fight. And we should not take ourselves so seriously that we cannot join others in laughing at our own foibles. <laughs> um, these are not battles to fight. The more we can resist fighting these battles, the more resilient and less brittle we will be. And this is one of the wonderful things about humility. Uh, in ancient times, humility was not viewed as a virtue, it was viewed as a weakness. Uh, but the teachings of Jesus and Paul have established this idea in Western culture that actually humility is a virtue. And just think about the resilience and the strength that humility gives to a person. The ability to uh, get knocked down and have it not destroy you. Um, the, 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 the brittleness of pride. This is brittle as a picture of something that appears strong, but all you need to do is touch it and it shatters. <laughs> it has no flexibility. In, in contrast, humility is incredibly flexible and resilient. It enables us to, uh, to be humiliated without being destroyed. <clears throat> so, to laugh at yourself, I think, is to admit that you, who have tremendous dignity, have just done or said something that does not fully reflect your dignity. And our, our theology undergirds this response. I think it's, we're on theologically solid ground to laugh at ourselves in this way. Another example, it's just kind of a stupid example, but for some reason it came to my mind while preparing this lecture. Uh, <laughs> it's another discussion, me talking one, sorry. Uh, but we're at a, at a table, having a conversation around lunch. I don't remember what the conversation was about, but I obviously felt that I had something very important to say. And at this very moment, this cat, that, that is sort of our cat, uh, is at the basement door and just starts meowing so loudly. It's just perfectly timed for like... The second I, I try to say something, it, it interrupts, and then interrupts again, and it's, it's, the timing was magnificent. And, uh, you know, you, I have this choice. Do I just grit my teeth, try not to hear the cat, and just keep going, put my head down as the entire table is starting to laugh? Uh, and the more, the harder I try to sort of complete my thought, the harder everybody's is laughing. And, you know, the, the, the only wise choice there is to bail, right? <laughs> Get out and bail. Laugh. Who cares if you never finish that thought? Um, this, this is an example of Muffin the Cat interrupting me in a, in a redemptive way, I think. But I still, I have to be honest, it's just incredibly frustrating because I did not want to laugh at myself at that moment. I was taking myself very seriously and thought other people should too, right? Um, what about this this idea of laughing at yourself in prayer? This, this sounds maybe a, a little bit offensive, um, but 
this, I'm just going to talk about this very briefly, mostly just by reading a quote from the screw tape letters. And uh, hopefully you'll see what I'm getting at. This is from uh, chapter 14 in the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. And for anyone who doesn't know, the screw tape letters is a, a very satirical series of um, imaginary letters from one demon to another demon giving advice. It's from a senior demon giving advice to a junior demon as to how to confuse and befuddle a human being away from God. So everything is backwards. What's good is bad, what's bad is good, and so it takes some getting used to. Um, My dear Wormwood, the most alarming thing in your last account of the patient is that he is making none of those confident resolutions which marked his original conversion. No more lavish promises of perpetual virtue, I gather, not even the expectation of an endowment of grace for life, but only a hope for the daily and hourly pittance to meet the daily and hourly temptation. This is very bad. I see only one thing to do at the moment. Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? (laughs) All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. Catch him at that moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by Jove, I'm being humble. (laughs) And almost immediately pride, pride at his own humility, will appear. If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt, and so on through as many stages as you please. But don't try this too long, for fear you awake his sense of humor and proportion. In which case, he will merely laugh at you and go to bed. <laughs> this is one of my favorite parts of the whole book. This idea that to just laugh at the devil and laugh at your own folly and go to bed may be the most spiritually wise thing to do <laughs> in this given moment. <laughs> um, <clears throat> we bring no dignity to defend in prayer that God hasn't provided for us and given to us. So we, so if, if we're in prayer before the Lord who made us and knows us, sees us through and through, uh, what dignity are we trying to defend before him? It's only what he's given us. Um, better to laugh at our struggles in prayer and move on than to deny the obvious and pretend that we're not struggling or to despise ourselves and give up as hopeless rejects. To be able to identify our own ridiculousness in prayer. And I think of this for me, it's the level of distraction. What pops into my head while I'm trying to pray? It is just absurd. Nothing to do with the matter at hand. Nothing to do with what, I, what I'm actually coming to God for. Uh, my mixed motivations in prayer. All over the place. My relentless navel-gazing during prayer introspection, my misconception of who I am and of who God is in prayer. Um, we have an option to turn away from our <laughs> from prayer in disgust because we're hopeless, or to honestly and humbly laugh at ourselves and keep praying. And, and this is a gift. Um, it's something we can only do if we're confident in God's grace and patience with us. If we're not confident in the fact that God really knows, loves, hears us, credits us with much better prayers than we actually offer Him. 
Uh, if we're not confident in that grace, then we will not be in a place of security to laugh at ourselves. <laughs> we'll be in despair. But I think there's an amazing way in which, I think Lewis is getting at this, if we're confident in the grace and the love of God, which is not dependent on my eloquence and, and, and focus in prayer, I'm confident in that grace, I'm actually free to uh, acknowledge my own absurdity <laughs> and move on, right? <clears throat> what about this final question? <laughs> Incongruity in heaven. This is really my conclusion. For lack of a conclusion, I just made the last section the end of the lecture. Um, If humor is based on incongruities, will there be humor in heaven? Won't all the incongruities be ironed out? Surely? (laughs) Um, this This is great speculation here, of course, but... I think that there is such a thing as an eternal heavenly joke. Uh, something that will last for eternity. And I think this final laughter will be a response to the incongruity of being lost, but being found. Uh, of being deserving of eternal death and yet being given life. Uh, shockingly unlikely <laughs> that it would have ever happened. This is the incongruity of, of grace, incongruity of remembering who we were and yet who we are in Christ. And this, 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 there won't be, there won't be a hint of cynicism or cruelty in this laughter. It will be a laughter of pure joy, looking at the incongruity and the unlikeliness of the fact that we are children of God, uh, enjoying His presence forever. There's various places that hint at this. Uh, it's not actually considered scripture, but in Tolkien's story, Leaf by Niggle, which we, which we read earlier this term, there's this wonderful part where there's these two characters, uh, Niggle and Parrish, and um, it's kind of a story of, of, about death and about, um, it's, it's sort of Tolkien's picture of sanctification gradually over time with all kinds of wonderful and beautiful uh, lessons about art making and the value of work continuing into the new world and all these, all these rich ideas. But um, these two characters who are now in heaven, who were once neighbors and kind of didn't get along, they're now in heaven together up in the mountains. And they are shocked to find out. They get a message saying that this little, this little area of land, these woods on the, on the outskirts of the mountains that they themselves had a hand in making and forming has become a place where lots of people go to find healing. And it's been given a name, which is Niggles Parish, which combines their two names. Anyway, and the very last words of this story are, well, what was their response? What did they say when they found out that this land that they had worked on together was called Niggles Parish? And the, the last words of the story is, they laughed. The mountains rang with it. <laughs> so this is the idea of these two characters laughing in heaven at the unlikeliness, the incongruity of the fact that there's this land that they themselves contributed to uh, that is a place of healing and is named after them. Uh, honored when they were unworthy of honor. 
I think there's a little picture of this for us in Genesis 21. Um, I love this. Remember, uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, heard this promise that she was going to give birth to a son, and she's in her 90s, and she laughs. This laughter is not a joyful laughter. Uh, this is a, a, a laughter like a yeah, right. <laughs> What a what a what a stupid thing they just said, <laughs> kind of laughter, uh, and yet after Isaac's birth, this is in Genesis twenty one. Uh, Abraham it says in verse five, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, "God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me." And she added, "Who would have said to Abraham?" that Sarah would nurse children. Yet, I have borne him a son in his old age. And I love this. It's like, because the story contains a, a, a redemption of laughter. There's cynical laughter, and yet at the end, when, when Sarah sees that this promise was actually real, God meant it. It wasn't a stupid lie. It was God, it was God making the promise, and he gave them this son. And now, she says, God is the one that brought me that laughter. And what, what's, what's she laughing about? It's the incongruity of the fact that she's 90 years old and still had a baby. This is unlikely indeed. Uh, <clears throat> and everyone who hears about it will laugh with me, not at me, with me. In other words, there's going to be a joyful laughter, a joyful response to the incongruity of this situation. And that, to me, is, is something like the picture of the incongruity of grace that will be the heavenly joke for all eternity. <laughs> um, that will be what, what uh, will be the source of great joy and I think laughter in heaven. That's where I'm going to end. And uh, at this point we can stop for discussion. And anybody that, uh, you know, if you're in your home, feel free to go get a drink and uh, go to bed. <laughs> But um, we can um, ask questions or share comments uh, either online or in the room. So, any thoughts? Dono. When's it inappropriate to laugh at yourself? There's probably there's probably lots of there's probably lots of times when it's inappropriate to laugh at yourself. I mean, or or wrong motivations for doing so, or whatever. I mean, I, I think I think some some people use self-deprecating humor as as a, as just a mode of communicating all the time in a way that doesn't necessarily. Uh, reflect anything ridiculous about themselves. It's just, it's just, it's, it's just kind of a um, a mode that people get stuck in. Sometimes I think I'm guilty of that. Sometimes, um, and I and I think, why am I, why am I doing this? Am I just sort of addicted to hearing people laugh? <laughs> right? Um, there can be a really self-serving uh, role that humor 
our own humor plays for us. We can use humor, even if it's laughing at ourselves, as a self-protective thing. Uh, because there's something that we're uncomfortable with and we don't really want to address it, don't want to talk about it. So, boom, make a make a joke. Keep keep it all at arm's length. Um, I mean, I suppose there's examples of truly a humor that actually really dishonors your own dignity as a human being. I can't think of a great example right now. We're much more likely to do that to other people. <laughs> uh, and so there's... It's much easier to think of examples of when, it's, when humor is really inappropriate in, in, insofar as it's a lack of love for people, um, for other people. I don't know. Any, do, do you have a... You asked the question. Any ideas? <laughs> well, I was wondering about... You were talking about incongruity and... I think making quite a clear distinction that it's not... When you're talking about, like... Humor sort of comes in with the fall. It's not about sin. It's about a sort of. <clears throat> it's more about like sin's effects mm. and like infections and whatever. So, you know, so when you yeah. slip with your eggs in your hand, yeah, that's not your sin or laughing. Right. Yeah. But that would have, you know, <coughs> most people say that's not something that happens in a sort of, you know, the slip and the pain and the mm-hmm. shame and the, you know, all those things that might come with it yeah. are a product of the fall. Mm. So where's the line between, like, yeah, laughing yourself, laughing at your sin? Mm. Yeah, yeah. This is one of the areas that I get I get sort of confused about, honestly, myself. I think um, I think it, all these different kinds of incongruities come with the fall. Only some of it's funny. <laughs> not, not all of it is funny, but I, I think that I mean, I, and I don't. I wouldn't necessarily want to say that there was no humor before the fall. I I don't really know, but but um, there there seems to be something very good and redemptive and uncorrupted about some humor that I think may, maybe there even was this innocent kind of way in which, yes, we're images of God, we're made in God's image and we're, we're glorious and yet we're, we're still finite. We still, you know, um, I have no idea whether Adam and Eve did made goofy mistakes or not. <laughs> but the fact of the matter, sin is not funny. And there's nothing, I think uh, there's actually a passage Another passage in the screw tape letters. I didn't want this to become a screw tape letters reading, but um, there's an amazing passage where he's talking about the way humor functions, particularly for the English, <laughs> which is like you can almost you, you can if you can pass off some vice of your own as a joke, then you can do almost anything and it'll be excusable. So you can be a total coward. Avoid avoiding anything that you're afraid of, and yet, if you draw attention to the fact that you're being cowardly and exaggerated, and you make your friends laugh, then you're a funny guy, right? <laughs> uh, you can be a cheapskate and never never uh, offer to help pay for anything at all, but if you draw attention to the fact and make a joke out of it, then oh, you're all right. You're just making you're funny, you know. 
And so he, he's, he's pointing to the fact that with a humor can excuse, we can use humor to excuse our sin. And uh, I think that would, be, that would be a very good example of, of the kind of thing you're talking about, because sin, sin itself is not funny. It's, it's, it's incongruity in the sense we were made to be holy, and we're not. But that's not funny incongruity. That's that's tragic incongruity. Um, yeah, it's 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 a tricky one. I, I um, yeah, like I said before, there there's 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 gray areas, and when it comes to incongruity, there's so many. It's like a very broad spectrum of different kinds of things we're talking about that I um, I don't know if I can tell you where the line is. <laughs> But any any other thoughts on that? <clears throat> Is that your hand up, Joshua? I, it, yeah. I have a different thought. Okay. I don't have any thoughts to that. But, um, That's no, okay. I, um, yeah, I'm just I, um, thinking about the ability to laugh at oneself. I mm-hmm. think um, when I think it, I have to put it the right way. It's it's a characteristic or a trait that helps me. I kind of trust a person in a way, or, mm-hmm. or um, you see them sort of differently, and maybe trust isn't exactly always the case, but you see them differently. I just think of like, um, and not to always like bring it to politics, um, <laughs> but like Saturday Night Live is just brutal in their mm-hmm. satire of mm-hmm. politicians, and yeah. they were brutal of Sarah Palin. Yeah, uh, Tina Fey did this mm-hmm. amazing and. And I, I don't particularly care for um, Sarah Palin's politics, but Sarah Palin like went on Saturday Night yeah, Live yeah. a few times, and it's sort of like it's hard <laughs> not to respect her for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Like walking into the kind of like belly of the beast and just being <laughs> herself. Yeah, and yeah. It's really hard not to respect that, and also it's sort of it undid like the power that Saturday Night Live had. To kind of make her look like an idiot. Yeah. I mean, they still could, but yeah. she was like, okay. Like, and I don't know. She's unthreatened of, by this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, There's something that yeah. I kind of, you know, I see things that are differently than her, but it's hard not to admire yep. that and see that as like, like a strength of, of some sort. And I know mm-hmm. also in public thing, any attention... Uh, is considered good attention. You know, like, I don't... Yeah. Anyway, it's yeah. just interesting to think about how uh, the ability to laugh at oneself, at least for me, can either endear a person or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. help you kind of trust a person uh, in some way. And I have I yeah. really hadn't thought about that till I saw your lecture title and mm. I'm myself thinking about mm. that. But, you know. I think that's true. I mean, I, I think that it, there can be... Uh, a really lovely way in which for some people it makes you feel at ease because you realize, oh, I'm not going to... This person will be hard to accidentally offend. Yeah. You know, if they if they, they sort of carry themselves lightly. You know, yeah. not 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 in a flippant, trivial way, but, but in a way they're like, oh, this, this person can... I don't know, take a joke, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> so, um... There's like yeah. different ways to also be a, a, a leader, and some models of, of leadership, or maybe implicit ones, are like you're all you always get the last word. Yeah, you're yeah. always kind of seen in the best light. But there's also something about someone who's willing to mm-hmm. 
show their humanity or mm-hmm. um, you not always have the last word or be laughed at. Right. Um, and laugh at themselves with that. Yeah. But actually kind of builds, uh, I don't know, you could go along with. I don't mm-hmm. know. So. Um, well, it, it can be it can be a sign that the, this person is trustworthy because they're willing to acknowledge true things that right, right, in right. public that don't that don't uh, that don't make them, not just the things that make them look good. Um, yeah, maybe this person cares about the truth <laughs> as opposed to looking good. Yeah, you know that. Yeah, Mike. I don't know if anyone mentioned this while I was gone, but um, it's a little bit different, but. That's one of the examples that Dick has in one of his books is from the from Farmer Boy mm-hmm. when um, Am- I think it was Almanza when he yeah. was very young and was at a at a um, like a country fair mm. and he had never seen and, and he was sort of a whole crowd of people mm-hmm. he got up there was this animal he'd never seen before and he was you know didn't know what it was and suddenly I guess it was a mule mule so yeah he just opened its mouth and just made this horrific noise right in Almanzo's face and Almanzo was terrified yeah. and scrambled, tried to get out and it's such a moving passage, mm-hmm. it just says the whole crowd, everyone there laughed at him yeah. and he felt utterly ashamed yeah. and only father didn't laugh Yeah. and it's just so, such a powerful thing mm. of, you know, God sees our ridiculousness but the idea that God doesn't laugh at us yeah. in our Shame yeah. in our ignorance and whatever, but it just—I don't know—it's just such a powerful yeah. passage of God's grace and love and mercy. And He knows we're dust. Yeah, He knows. He knew this, you know, and His Father understood this little boy. Was terrified. Had no idea. Yeah, this was not an animal to be afraid of, but only Father did laugh. Yeah, it's just, it's just amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. That's yeah. a, that's a great, a great passage in that story, Farmer Boy. Yeah. Yeah, the, fa- the father just because the father loves his son Almanzo, that he's not swayed yeah. by the peer pressure of everybody laughing. Right. He, he doesn't say like, "Oh, come on, you get over it, kid. Come on, look at that." I mean, it's just a you know, nothing. Just yeah. <laughs> serious. Yeah. Take takes him um, yeah. with complete seriousness. Yeah. A sense of other, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was thinking of another. Oh yeah, think of God. Of God actually laughing. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Irma Bombeck was, oh, yes. uh, was uh, wrote a lot of really sort of humorous books. Yeah. And, and it just of her, it was all of her normal life. Yeah. She saw everything in a very humorous way. <laughs> and, and I heard an interview with her, and, and the the, uh, the interviewer said, "When you, and she's a very well-known Catholic." Her, okay. Her, her, yeah. Seriously, and she said, "When you when you pray, do you laugh?" Uh-huh. And Robin said, "No, no. When I pray, then it's God's turn to laugh." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. But, right, right, right. But it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the kind of laugh that the father might right. have done but didn't do. It would right. be la- laughing with her. Yeah, yeah. It wouldn't be laughing of ridicule, like laughing at. Yeah, her. it wouldn't be the the, the laughter that God. The laughter of derision yeah, that God yeah, shows exactly. to the to the wicked, yeah. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I hadn't thought of that as God laughing with us at ourselves. So. <laughs> yeah.
Thank you. Yes, Sarah. Um, two, I have two thoughts. One, uh, it, uh, sort of on the side of like, when when is it good to not laugh mm-hmm. at someone? Mm-hmm. And in Narnia, my mind went to read the cheek. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, like, like you, you're not, you can't laugh at him. <laughs> right. And I'd have to think more about that. Yeah. Maybe yeah. you can think about that if you do another, you know, part two or something. <laughs> part two, laughing at others? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, he does take himself so seriously. Yes, but yes. There's something appropriate yeah. about it, too. And, uh, it's his honor. Yeah. It's chivalry. And- right. Valiant. Um, anyway, I, want, I want to yeah. think about Ricky yeah. too. Is it, um, but then, yeah, I was just going to ask, like, what what do you think helps one just sort of nurture humor about mm. themselves? Like, how do you grow this capacity if you mm-hmm. find yourself a bit trunken? You know? <laughs> and and how do what, we, how might do we... be, what might be the role of, like, Okay, let people poke a bit of fun, you know? Or right. Maybe there's, yeah, something to that. I don't know. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, that's, that's a very natural question following from this lecture. I don't, I don't have a lot of ideas there. I mean, the, the question, with, uh, for those of you who might not have heard, the, the question was what are some ways in which to nurture this ability to laugh at ourselves um, if we're feeling sort of stunted in that area. <laughs> um, I think uh, we obviously it will, it will always have to do with our, our relationships and interactions with other people. You know, and maybe being, um, I don't know, I mean, I, I think sometimes we like to surround ourselves with people that just make us, make us feel confident and strong and smart. <laughs> And, uh, I mean, I think it's a great help to interact with, with children, because yeah. children very often just point out things that are, you know, mercilessly, that are, are true about us, or at least maybe partially true about us, uh, or ask us questions that are just unanswerable, um, or, or whatever. I mean, I think that's a, um, Children don't necessarily instinctively like respect our dignity, especially if if we're their parents. Uh, and so that's always good practice. <laughs> um, and then I, I think sometimes we just have to be willing to to you know it's the type of thing I'm, I, I imagine that uh, hurts more to do the less practice we are at it. I, th- I think particularly, I mean, this, uh, uh, probably most people can laugh and chuckle about something when it doesn't really cost us much. Yeah, yeah, sorry, I almost wiped out there. Oh, I mispronounced a word or something trivial, right? You know, it's not, not going to, like, wound our pride too much. But there there may be times when it really does, you know? <laughs> and we have a, a much more costly choice in front of us. Do I let this go? Or do I stand my ground, <laughs> Right? And uh, maybe laughter isn't possible, uh, but <clears throat> I think that that uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it, I, I think it is the kind of thing that does take practice. <laughs> um, yeah, Joshua, do you have an idea there? Yeah. I think um, 
I mean, there's always there's multiple gifts to like intergenerational relationships. Yeah. But I do think having uh, sometimes things that make me not take myself seriously is a fear of failure. Yeah. Uh, or looking really stupid, like yeah. that's going to be painful. Yeah. But being around someone and knowing someone who's had that happen, and they realize, like, well, I didn't die, and <laughs> like, I'm still here. Like it kind of like it can, it can happen to you. And yeah. I don't know. I just think my uh, my my father has a unique sense of humor, mm-hmm. but he has not taken me seriously. Sometimes that has been. You know, sometimes it's painful, but sometimes it's been like the best, the best thing for me. Like I, I crashed the, the week I graduated high school. I crashed our family's car mm. in our front yard. <laughs> in our front yard, and my parents had like no money, so it's not like it was no big, like it was ruined. Yeah. And uh, I came home a few days later, and he had made like a sign. Like a big sign and put on the stump that was like the Joshua W. Chestnut Memorial stump. <laughs> and it was like, he just like wasn't mad that I ruined his car. But just like had jokes about it. And yeah. It was like, because I felt like such an idiot. I'm yeah. Like, I'm leaving. I'm leaving high school on this note of <laughs> looking like a buffoon. Yeah. And yeah. he was like, "Yep, yeah, you are." Like, still my son. Yeah. Well, I don't know. So I think. <laughs> That's like uh, I think about I th- I thought about that story a little bit this week. Yeah. Well, like I do think there's a gift to that, and even when we we went to church with with folks that were significantly older than us, we mm-hmm. were this by thirty or forty years uh, for for a season. Yeah, and they had a similar perspective on things that were such whatever. They were like, yeah, and I don't know. They just had more yeah. perspective, and they lived longer and could see. Thanks. I just feel like some of those are there's tons of gifts of, yeah. for intergenerational relationships, yeah. but and obviously some folks grow bitter, and yes. so not every older person, not everyone who's aged is like an elder in that sense. Right. Yeah. But there are people that I think have aged really well, and mm. yeah, know when I've learned when you just gotta laugh and be like, yeah. all right, you lost a car, but. Let's have fun. So, so, so maybe the lesson of that is to spend spend time with more people that don't take us seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe those people are our own parents. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. yeah, get used get used to being around people that don't take you too seriously. I think that's that's probably pretty wise. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Right. Or your or or take seriously your your uh, catastrophizing. Right. Yeah. 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 I think. Yeah. I think we can kind of. I'm not sure. I think we can kind of try to remind ourselves of our ridiculousness. Yeah. I mean, because so much of what we do, so much of what we are, is ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, comedians are people who are sensitive to absurdities. Yeah, yeah. That have not just absurdities, but absurdities that have humor attached. Yeah, yeah. And they see them all over the place. Yeah. I mean, I listen to Woody Allen. I think, well, that was hilarious, but it was actually, you know, I didn't think of it. I, I knew exactly what he was talking about. I never thought of putting it in that. Thought way. of it as funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like playing a cello in a marching band. And he, he, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which you guys, yeah. It's something absolutely simple. And, yeah. and that's where it's. Humor doesn't have just to do with sin. No, that no, could no, no, yeah. Before the fall. 
Absolutely. You could have tried to play the cello in a marching band before the fall. <laughs> I'm not sure there would have been marching bands before the fall, though. Not the one we We would mustn't let people get tangled up with, as with necessary yes. in an imperfect world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but but the, our, our ability to just see ridiculousness yeah. and, and see and so much of what we do is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Ourselves, each of us. Yeah. And I think we, if we can nurture that and see that mm-hmm. and not be afraid of that, that may help. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, that's helpful. Mm. Any other? Th- uh, Nikayla. I, I wonder what you think about God laughing at us in sort of a parental way <laughs> when we sort of laugh at our kids at their cleverness huh. when they do something very clever and funny and we find it funny. Yeah. And God sort of laughing at us when we do everything in sort yeah. of a pleasing way. Yeah. Or in like a, well, look at you. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny? Mm-hmm. Do you think we get that from God? Mm. I, I think it's the, I think it's delight. Yeah. I don't know of of any specific mentions of that in the Bible where, where it's laughter mm-hmm. but there's lots of language about God's delight, delight yeah. mm-hmm. in his children and certainly from our perspective as human beings part of our delight in our children is the way in which they make us laugh uh, not just jokes uh, but yeah ways in which we see them in a new light mm-hmm. they're more grown up than I thought they said that what you know uh, or um or something that they say that's just so particularly them. No one else would have said that in that way. You know, it's it's like poof, that is so like Noah. You know, and that's, there's delight. Yeah. There's delight in that. Um, and I, I I don't have a hard time. You know, obviously without being able to point to a particular passage off the off the top of my head, I don't have a hard time seeing God. And that, that, that I, don't, I think God. If he, if he delights in us, if that language means anything at all, then I think there's something like that with his children. Yeah, yeah, with us. Yeah, yeah Jono. This is on a different point. Oh, okay. So okay, Marty. Well, this is just, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the analogy that the language of God being our father mm-hmm. and that familial language, I think, lends itself to, to that. You know, that, yeah. that, that we can make analogies of how we enjoy our children or delight or what makes our children make us laugh. And I, some of it is... Well, I I think I've given this example, I don't know, here before, but when I happened to be in your apartment upstairs when Ellie took her first steps, Mm -hmm. and she'd been, so the the delight, she'd been walking on her knees, and Abby'd been running, walking and running sooner, Mm -hmm. and then as she walked across, as she got up and took her first steps, there was just laughter, and it Mm -hmm. was such incredible delight. Um, mm. Abby was laughing and clapping. <laughs> Ellie was laughing. You all were laughing. I yeah. was laughing. Yeah. Because, and it was the delight of, of um, growth and dominion. Yes. You know, of, a, of a child taking a new step in yep. dominion and what it is to be an image of God. And I can see God laughing in that way with, mm-hmm. a, with delight. You know, again, not laughing at us, but just yeah. laughing with delight at, here's a Here's one of his children yeah. who's taken a step. Is maybe that a kind of laughter that isn't incongruous? 
Because it's just yeah, joy and love, basically like yeah. overflowing, yeah. right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's not humor. Yeah, it's, it's just, yeah, it's yeah. really humor. No, yeah, it's not yeah. Humor. You're right. It's, it's just, just delight in the, yeah. delight. But but laughter, the laughter is still the result. Surprisingness. Of it. Yeah. yeah. But laughter, but it's just the fact that laughter is is just so natural in a situation. Yeah. Like that, I think it's awesome. It, you know, it's not everybody saying it's like, oh, wonderful. Ellie just took her first step. It, it's let's check that box. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah it's yeah. just totally. Mm-hmm. Everyone laughed. Because this lecture is about the screw tape letters, I'm going to mention it one more time. Um, <laughs> this, this, there's a passage in the screw tape letters about this also, where, there's, where he, he's, he's this hyper-rationalistic kind of demon that breaks everything up into categories. And is like, there are four causes of laughter in the human animal. You know, uh, out of, you know I don't remember where they all are, but the first one is, is uh, uncer- we're uncertain what the source of it is, but we tend to see it when loved ones are reunited after a long time of being apart, yeah, it's because he doesn't understand what love is. He, he, it's, it's like this mystery to him. So he's, so he's like, this kind, we don't understand it, we don't like it, it's always to be discouraged. <laughs> Basically, it's just, he's, he's describing joy and love, you know. But it's, it's the laughter that doesn't seem to have any particular purpose except this thing that he doesn't understand, right? It's very clever. Yeah. <laughs> it's dangerous. It's terrible. Yeah. Discourage it at all costs. <laughs> yeah, don't. How do you think laughing at yourself becomes easier or harder depending on whether you're with like strangers or people you know really well? So I've had the experience, I've lost count of the number of times that I, <coughs> I found myself alone with a complete stranger either in the street or mm-hmm. like a public bathroom or something and something funny happens mm-hmm. to one of us like a trip or, and <laughs> the other person says something like oh don't worry like no one saw <laughs> <laughs> and it's really really funny yeah <laughs> moments like that I found if, the, if I'm the person who's done the silly thing like I laugh with this complete stranger sure. about myself I know me and it's like there's no sex but right, right, right. if I did that same thing in front of a group of people I knew maybe I'd try and cover it up yeah, that's interesting. Uh, is it because there's, there's no future relationship with that stranger you have no reputation to protect and mm-hmm. And so you could say, it's, it's a similar way, you could say something to a total stranger you'll know you'll never see again, because what have you got to lose? Is that what it, I, I'm not sure, I'm just asking. It's also like the incongruity of privacy that happens. Like, you know, like you're, even if you're in a public space, you're operating privately, and yes. then that's broken. Yeah. And so it's almost like that is what you're laughing at. Yeah. It's particularly and funny and broken. <laughs> it's, it's, it's more funny in England, is that what you said? Yeah, because you would like never talk to a stranger anyway. <laughs> Geographically. And you would like, have a nice <laughs> stranger. Yeah. yeah, you're like, there are three, you know, traditionally there are two places where you talk to a stranger. One is if the bus is late, and the other one's if the weather's bad. Yeah. Which is a lot of the time, well, the though. The third so. one's like, if there's something funny. You know, you're allowed to break that. And right, right, right. right. <laughs> That is really yeah, but interesting. I think there is something about like lower stakes and yeah. reputation, but also the privacy thing, of, like yeah. mm-hmm. because you don't know them, you assume it. Yeah. Like, you're, you're mm-hmm. I think yeah. there's a certain joy in it as well. In that, if you have a, it's usually a, something very simply human. 
and a connection that, that you make with some total stranger. Yeah. To me, there's something special that we don't know each other, we'll never see each other again, but we've linked somehow on something deeply human mm-hmm. uh, together. We saw it the same way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you see the same way, which is, wow, I don't know this but God. Yeah, this world, yeah. And, and we had this connection, and, and, and we saw it the same way. Yeah. Which is, which is, there's a commonality there that, yeah. Yeah, it's, that's deeper than just the, the event. you try and learn to understand some people yeah. and have any connection. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's right. wonderful to just bang like that yeah. by some accident. I think I actually, I think, now that you say that, I think I actually maybe sort of subconsciously look for things to laugh about with strangers. Yeah. Maybe for that reason. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I mean, I can't think of any examples, but I, but, but I, but I sort of, um, want to have more just kind of like off the cuff funny connections with people that I run into at the grocery store you know it, it, it's sort of a um, to, yeah just to just to break this kind of like unspoken wall of everybody in their own zone you know I think it's sort of refreshing and, 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 and anonymous yeah being anonymous yeah, yeah. I, like I once had a moment where I was cycling and someone overtook me, mm-hmm. and I thought, I'm going to take that. <laughs> so I, I then overtook them. And then it was like, <laughs> and we sort of raced for a while. Yeah. And then the rest of the world disappeared. It was just the two of you. Off. I just said thanks for the race. But we were both, uh, it was great, because we were both kind of laughing at ourselves. Yeah. Like, You're right, right. Really <laughs> 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 but you, could, you couldn't <laughs> resist. <laughs> What's the matter with us? <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. yeah Joshua? I, I was going to say, I've had funny moments on airplanes with people where there's like someone in the row who sort of takes their shoes off and is, and then you and the other person are like, Ugh. <laughs> you, you don't know the person, you're not necessarily like angry at them, and you're just like, all right. It's like, and it's just, it's Here we go. Like, yeah, I don't know. So, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Forty. Um, just that thinking back to Irma Bombeck. Um, I mean, she was around a while ago. I don't mm-hmm. know if she still is, but she was very good at making fun of a certain brand of feminists mm-hmm. who were utterly humorless. And I just was wondering, in, you know, in, in certain kind of moral reform movements, there can be a stance of such self righteousness mm-hmm. that you mm-hmm. can just never imagine. The person yeah. being able to laugh at themselves. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's a good point. Yeah, this, 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 you know, strident, but it really is incredibly it tends to be incredibly self righteous. Yeah, I mean, I feel that with some certain politicians today, you just can't imagine them laughing at themselves or mm-hmm. laughing at much of anything. Yeah, <laughs> just the and and I think you're much more you're much more able to actually win people to your moral crusade. <laughs> If you, you, if you, if you appear to be a human. Yeah. <laughs> they never asked me to the revolution. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, just, uh, you're, you're, you're going to be more persuasive yeah. if you are more human in the sense of yeah. being able to... And this is where, like, if you're in a particular position and you're actually cons- you're actually thinking through your rhetoric in terms of how to communicate, yeah. a, I mean, yeah. th- this is, you get much more into... Strategies of communicating, what connects with people, and everything like, which is, I think, all very true. Um, and I think you're totally right. Self righteousness 
is something that gets in the way of being able to laugh at yourself. You know, as, as if somehow, well, I've seen this, you know, as, as if somehow I will take the cause backwards if I am seen to, to be a human being. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I can't imagine, um, for example, Elizabeth Warren <laughs> laughing at herself or being able to laugh at the fact that one of Donald Trump's I think funniest jokes was calling her a Pocahontas <laughs> when she claimed that she had Native American. <sighs> I don't know how funny I found that one, well, buddy. <laughs> it's not really funny, but it's, yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was poking, it was poking yeah. fun at her in a way that, you know, it was, was kind of ridiculous her claim to be yeah. Native American. And, and sure, she, it was, yeah. She could have responded with some you know, like, you got me there, yeah, I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. but you know, you never hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I am, I have, you know, 116th or 130th. Yeah. I can show you, you know, the, the sort of defensiveness of, yeah. I, mean, I don't know, I mean, that's just the example that came to my head, but that's mm-hmm. a kind of... Yeah, in the in the realm of politics, it's all it's it's a total totally different ball game. I think it in terms really of because being able to laugh at yourself is somehow in certain contexts synonymous with admitting you've made a mistake, which is you know you can't do that without you know p- committing political suicide or which something, is awful which is pathetic. Yeah, yeah, it's pathetic. People actually being yeah. able to admit a mistake. Actually, yeah. Biden admitted mm-hmm. quite a few serious mistakes. Mm-hmm. The way that you can do it, there's, there's this wonderful uh, way of saying that you've made a mistake without actually saying it, which is uh, you can say mistakes were made, oh, yeah. <laughs> which is which is a good the glory of the passive voice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, I think I'll probably stop yeah, there. Thank uh, but thanks a lot, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you.